oh, the first one was, it was with Jan. And I rang her first. And she said, can you come now? <laughs> I, I can't do that. But I can come tonight. That was our need. That's what we needed. And she said, okay, come after the jar. The kids, her twins were four and a half. She'd never spoken to anybody about it at all. Her and I had a glass of wine each at her house. I went to her house and we talked till... We can't remember what time in the morning, but I got home at some ridiculous hour. And we laughed and we cried and we had the best time. And once I got home, I thought, if we got so much out of that, I've got to ring these other four ladies straight away and invite them to my home. I remember how hard it was to be honest with others about how I was feeling after my first son was born. What I had imagined was going to be this joyous time was just not like that at all. I was trying to appear happy and thankful for this beautiful baby, but on the inside, I felt alone, panicked and overwhelmed. When I first opened up properly, it was a game changer. Feeling seen by others who understood what I was going through really helped to burst my isolation bubble. And that's really what drew me to Panda. It's an organisation founded on that sense of connection, that feeling that really you aren't alone. It's an ethos that Panda has held from day one, and that's what this episode is about. It's the story of Panda, but it's also the story of how we treat perinatal mental health in this country, what's changed and what still has a way to go. I'm handing the reins over to Panda CEO Julie Bornenkoff, who's talking to two people critical to this story, Anne Lanigan and Professor Dorothy Scott. When Panda began in Anne's lounge room in the 1980s, there was nothing like it in the country. From that moment, a community grew and strengthened and changed the lives of the people it touched for the better. So before we get going, I'd just like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet today and have this amazing conversation, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. And I would like to acknowledge the many, many, many thousands of years that they've been caring for each other and the lands upon which we're meeting and upon which Panda gets to do its amazing work. And I'd also love to take a moment to just reflect on the pure wealth of lived experience that sits behind the conversation we're going to have today, but also all of the work that we do and the insights that we bring to these kind of conversations, because everything that we do is founded on lived experience. You know, as CEO of Panda, and almost for four years now, the history of this organisation really resonates with me, and I feel so privileged to get to work and build upon the foundations that both you, Anne and Dorothy, have brought to this country and to the work that we get to do every day. So I'm just so thrilled to sit with you. Thank you for being here and sharing in this conversation. It's really exciting for me. Oh, thank you, Julie. It's it's an honour to be here. It's our privilege. We are turning 40 this year, but I really want to hear about where Panda started. I want to hear about what was going on at the time, when? and I'm going to throw over to you. Can you tell us about, you know, you, your story, what occurred for you and what led to this point? Yes, um, 
40 years ago, well, 41 years ago, I had our third baby. And at that time, it was very obvious something wasn't quite right. So because it was my third, it was uh, immediate. I was euphoric and that's not unusual. I was told in the hospital. However, I hadn't felt like that with my other two. And not only was I euphoric, I then eventually, within 24 hours, couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, wandering around the hospital at all hours of the day and night, thinking, what on earth is going on with me? Uh, Crying for no reason, but I wasn't unhappy. That was the weird thing. And remember back 41 years ago, uh, we stayed in hospital for a week or five days to a week. Mm. So the nurses picked up very soon into it that something's not writing. I think it was about the fourth day a psychiatrist came to visit me and he talked to me for quite a while and he said, you've never been depressed before. I think you need to go home. You're just wandering around like a cage lion. You need to be home in your own safe house and with your children. So I was discharged and he said that, you know, everything will be all right in a couple of weeks. And that, unfortunately, was not to be. Things weren't well at all. In fact, I went from euphoric to many symptoms that women would relate to, and then depression, very depressed. And during that time, I reached out to about four different health professionals, all gave me some sort of advice, but none of the advice helped. One said to me, you'll wake up one day and you'll feel better. You've never been depressed before and you'll just go. So the state I was in, I took that advice because it sounded good. And I never woke up and felt better at all. So consequently, the time went on and I remember it clearly. I was so unwell. The three children were all very sick. And I said to Peter, I can't take them to the doctor. I'm just not capable. He said, I'm taking you all to the doctor. So we went to this clinic and the three children all had a viral type issue. And he said, and so Peter started telling him how I was behaving. And he said, you've got postnatal depression. He said, oh, yeah, they told me that in hospital. And he was horrified that they actually discharged me. And that was it. So he had an interest in PND. And he said to me, let's make a plan of action. This is what PND is. This is what you've got. I still didn't want to accept the fact because although I felt flat, I was still capable of doing a lot of things. And I I just got myself into a rut thinking, well, maybe it is because I've had two children, then a gap, and Mm. now, you know, everything everyone was suggesting to me. But I did do what he said. I sought help and I took medication. And within six months, felt like me again. It was great. Mm. So, Anne, can I ask you, what did it feel like in that moment when you were sitting with a health professional who actually heard and saw what it was you were going through? It was almost a moment 
that I remember so well thinking, how lucky that I went to this clinic. I don't even know this doctor. How lucky is this? But as when I got home, I'm thinking, this should not be luck. This is terrible to think that I've reached out once in the hospital and four times since. And this is the first acknowledgement and understanding of anybody telling me what was actually going on for me and, and not just not just saying, you'll be right. He rang me every day for two weeks mm. at home, every day. I was shocked. I didn't know doctors did that. But I felt alone the whole time, even though I had him and he was lovely. Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't know what would have happened if I didn't find him, uh, just by accident. He was a clinic, he was open, and he said, yeah, I'll see you all right now. And I think the piece that resonates there is that luck and what a continuity of care you were provided there, which, you know, in many cases is quite gold yeah. class. Dorothy, can I bring you into the conversation mm. here as, you know, a social worker who was in the system at the time, you know, and helping support people? What was the experience from a, a health professional point of view at this time? And was the luck um, really that or was it how the system was operating around parents? Oh, absolutely, luck, yes. Um, well, I was working in a psychiatric unit within uh, an obstetric and paediatric hospital here in Melbourne. And so the women coming to our service were mostly suffering from an acute psychosis that had been picked up within a week of the birth of the baby. And our hospital pioneered the joint admission of baby with the mother. And we would have only seen, I think, um, the most severely depressed women. But I was aware that there was a much, much larger group of women out there in the community being given very hit and miss Mm -hmm. responses from GPs and from the group that I then worked very... um, deeply with for, for really 30 to 40 years, maternal and child health nurses who or who are in other states of Australia are called child and family health nurses or in Tasmania, CHAPS nurses. Um, and I could see that they had an extraordinary potential to identify depression in mothers at an early stage and facilitate their referral. And I think it's no coincidence that that's how Anne made the next step from her isolation through a maternal and child health nurse. Yeah. My maternal and child health nurse, her name was Jean, and she was a great support to me. But she admitted to me the first day she called in, she said, "Uh, now I've seen your discharge papers and you have PND. She said, but I'll let you know I know nothing about it. And she hadn't had children herself either, but she was wonderful. She was the best support. She said, if ever you're not capable of coming down to the centre, I'll, I'll come visit you, which she did. She'd pop in unexpectedly. I, I think in hindsight she might have been checking up on me. <laughs> but at the time it was a great comfort. And because we'd had that connection, when I was well, she was the first person that I contacted there was nothing in the training of maternal and child health nurses. No. I think there probably was very little in the training of obstetricians. And I asked the librarian at the teaching hospital where I worked and she manually scanned 
the international literature and there was a small literature on postpartum psychosis. Mm -hmm. There was very, very little on depression. So it really was a, a period of time when there was not just a lack of knowledge in the wider community, but there was enormous lack of knowledge in the professional community. It was as if having had a child was totally irrelevant. Mm. You know, there were anxiety conditions, depressive conditions, psychotic conditions, but the relevance of having been pregnant and given birth and having the baby, the biopsychosocial significance mm. of this momentous transition in a woman's life, and I don't just mean the birth of the first child, but this, it was, it was, that was just written out. It was not to be a separate condition and a separate diagnostic category related to pregnancy and the postpartum period. It's quite extraordinary when you think back. Yeah, it's amazing. And also 40 years ago, we didn't have mother's group. Oh, wow. So let's dive into that bit. How important was connecting with people who had either shared experience or were able to understand, oh, yeah? Uh, Tell me about that. Oh, I, I can't. It still affects me now when I think about it. The day that I contacted Jean, I just rang her and I said, look, I'm feeling really well. And I felt so alone in this period of time, apart from you. Uh, is there anyone in, anyone at all in my area that would like to speak to me, may have had it, that you know of? And, of course, she was collecting data on it. And she said, leave it with me and I'll get back to you. So by the afternoon, I had five names, all with their phone numbers, all dying to speak. And they, they were in walking distance with my, from my home. I, I was just thinking... Not as rare as I thought. And what did that first conversation feel like? Oh, the first one was it was with Jan and I rang her first and she said, can you come now? <laughs> I, I can't do that, but I can come tonight. That was our need. That's what we needed. And she said, okay, come after dinner. The kids, her twins were four and a half. She'd never spoken to anybody about wow. it at all. Her and I had a glass of wine mm -hmm. at her house and we talked till we can't remember what time in the morning, but we, I got home at some ridiculous hour and we laughed and we cried and we had the best time. And once I got home, I thought, oh, if we got so much out of that, I've got to ring these other four ladies mm. straight away and invite them to my home. So I did that and they all came the next week. And the five of us, well, six, including five of them and me, it's indescribable how we all felt. People were crying, people were laughing one minute, and then, oh, I did that. Oh, I. It was just such a great bond. Yeah. However, it was very obvious that there was a stigma right there and then. How so? Well, one of the women, they were all gorgeous women and are gorgeous women was a psychiatric nurse and she said, I don't want you to tell anybody anything about my health issues. I said, this room's confidential. That's the first thing I'll tell anyone. But mostly even their families didn't know. 
See, everyone knew about me because mine happened in hospital. Mm. So the nurses had told my mother when she visited, which I might not have. My mum told my friends, yeah. <laughs> a little great but but no one knew what to do about it yeah. at the same time. So that night was very special and we decided to meet every fortnight, give or take, you know, if a baby's unwell or you and we did. And we were getting so much out of it that I suggested one night, I said, look, my feeling that I was so alone and their feeling was they were so alone, why don't we just do a little flyer, you are not alone, PND, symptoms, you know. And Jean said she would put in the health centre's number because I didn't want my phone number out there. So one by one, people started ringing and that was the story. Start the seed of was planted. Yes. The birth of Panda. Yeah. So, um, and I have to say, because I, I don't say this very often or I haven't when I've been asked to talk about Panda, I have to say how amazing my husband was. Like, I could never have done many of the things that I did without him because I was studying at the time too. So uh, he said he never knew what he was coming home to, but he supported everything how amazing. He was amazing. He would take the children out if he knew I was, you know, having a few people around for whatever reason. And no doubt he saw the power of what it was you were creating, you know, in well, that I moment too. Well, I think initially he saw how I benefited mm. from it and if I could do that. And then that's when it extended to him. Mm. He started talking to men on the phone. Amazing. So the from little things, big things grow. And at what point did you bring together? I love the story that you tell about that first meeting where you invited the community. It was a great night. It was fantastic night. And I always will remember being overwhelmed because in my naivety, I'd contacted the council who'd been very good to us at this stage. They were printing our newsletters and helping us with any office equipment that we needed. And... Uh, I said, oh, probably 50, 60 chairs would be great. We've only got about 20 in the place and, you know, a few cups. And over 200 people arrived. Amazing. We were the standing room only. We were so shocked. We were absolutely beside ourselves. And we had at the, at the, at the entry, we had uh, name tags, as you usually do, and a list to write your name and everything. And they weren't just women who had experienced this. They were sisters of, they were aunties of, they were mothers of, they were professional people, some professional Amazing. people that really wanted to, oh, what's this group about? Let's in the, just in the surrounding, and that was just that area. So 200 people came from And didn't want to leave, wine. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> we, we allowed about 15 minutes for the Q&A and... Uh, after about an hour, we had to say, look, really, I think this is going on a little bit too long and we're so sorry, but we'll have to wind the night up because we had to be out of that building too. But it was a fantastic night and it, it opened my eyes. You know, I've gone from two years ago thinking, oh, I'm the only one with mm. this, so it must be something strange about me to get this and nobody else has ever heard of it to suddenly, just in my local area, Having hundreds of people, people in this room. 
all they wanted really. We didn't need to present. I mean, we, it was great that the senior psychiatrist did present, gave us a lot of information and we kept those. We took extracts from those and gave them to other women that weren't there and kept doing that for many, many years. Um, but it was fantastic to think that, wow, this was what I was hoping for, mm. a bit of education. In one way, in hindsight, it's always a good thing. It was good to happen the way it did because it was steady and slow till then. Mm. And then we sort of felt we knew how to deal with it. So that need for education, the need for information was there right from the beginning. Dorothy, Absolutely. can you tell me, you know, how your role evolved in supporting that area of PANDA? Well, it, it goes back a little bit, if I can go back a little, to the power of bringing women together. Mm. So in 1976, in the psychiatry unit in which I worked, the role of the social worker, one of our roles was to visit women who had been inpatients and who were now home, to visit them at home, and we would do these individual home visits. And all of them were depressed, and it was thought that depression was a stage following postpartum psychosis. But they were also terribly socially isolated. Mm. All their families knew, of course, because they'd been admitted to hospital for 10, 12, 14 weeks. So there was this awful stigma where the family didn't know whether to talk about it or not talk about it. They tiptoed around. These women felt so different. They felt they were the only one. And so a colleague and I said, what would happen if we invited them to come together? And so one Thursday morning in 1976, and I will never forget it, it's like the first meeting in, in your home, Anne, um, we brought the women together and I was in awe. I mean, it almost makes me cry to remember that time. Again, laughter, tears, just the extraordinary relief that I was not the only one. And people would say, and did you have electroconvulsive therapy too? And how long were you in the ward? And what what are we going to are you ever go? They were all first-time mothers by by chance, really. And so there was this terror of but also a desire for a second baby. And the sense of relief was overwhelming, but also the depth of support for each other. It was probably the highlight of my career was that oh. one session and witnessing the intensity of the bonds that were formed instantly in that hour. So shared lived experience. And so um, while Anne's maternal and child health nurse was saying, um, I don't know about this thing, PND, but she was eager to learn about it. Very. So were many other maternal mm. and child health nurses. So by, you know, 1977, 1978, the maternal and child health nurses in Victoria were inviting me to speak at their Saturday morning conference. And some were saying, it, it doesn't exist, you're making this up. And then the women in the group would tell me what I should be saying to them. So I was taking the consumer, the lived experience voice into the professional education. And then I was saying to schools of nursing, 
well, what's in your training for maternal and child health nurses? And I got such response from them, less response from obstetricians and GPs, but a lot of response from child and family health nurses. And then it was as if the professional education was beginning and the lived experience was coming through Panda and the professionals were learning from Panda. And Panda was open, unlike some self-help groups at the time that were anti-professional, Panda was always open to valuing the professional expertise and valuing the lived experience. And I think that that was one of Panda's great strengths. was essential that we get that. Absolutely. That was part of our vision, really, was to, we thought, let's educate the health professionals. Mm -hmm. Of course, they were educating us as well. But like you were saying, Dorothy, I found out about your group through Jean. Yes. Because she had an interest. And if she hadn't had an interest, mm. I might not have been able to contact Dorothy. I still remember when we first met and there were, a, oh, there were probably 10 women. It was just fabulous because that, like you mentioned ECT. Mm-hmm. Oh, no one even spoke about that. Mm. And I'd get up in my talks and say about ECT. And some of the professionals came up to me and said, should you be talking about that? Because, you know, you're you're not a medical person. And I said, yeah, well, I can talk about it now because I had it. So I know what it was about. And this is what I'm trying to tell women, that there's nothing wrong with you and you will get well. But if you're that, low down. Sometimes that's the only thing that will get you out of it. And the sense of failure, that's what moved me so deeply. The guilt, the failure, the shame, so it couldn't be spoken of outside the family, and then the shame that other members of the family felt. So these women often felt so isolated even within their extended family, and there was such ignorance. So mothers, mothers-in-law would say things like, well, basically, you know, Pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. Well, what could what could crush someone more, more. than a statement like that? Mm. And and so there was a huge ignorance and huge stigma. And and Panda was like a a light. That's co- what I wanted to a light get rid coming of. in. <laughs> yes, it was just <laughs> and it just went from strength to strength. And some of the public meetings, the one we spoke about earlier, out in the western suburbs, there must have been. Hundreds, hundreds. five hundred, six hundred people. It, was it filled crazy. a huge town hall, and so it just snowballed. And, and I was in awe of how this group of women. I think my knees this. were shaking when I got up to speak at that one. Mm. It, yes, it was. It was extraordinary. Uh, it was. Yeah. yeah. And I can't imagine. I mean, the power of lived experience is a wonderful thing, but again, mm. it's about your experience and stepping into those forums and sharing that, and the passion and the commitment that we still hold in the organisation mm. is yes. so powerful, but yeah. so overwhelming. And I think women, like Dorothy just said, they not they know when they came to Panda and to people that we direct them to as medical health professionals that they weren't going to be judged anymore and they were they were going to hear that you will get well yes. and you do get well, but you need the right support to get well. Yes. So tell me also, Dorothy, you spoke then about family members and community mm. essentially wrapping around the individual. Where did dads come into this? Like, Well, well I think we, we forgot about them. Um, 
certainly for those who were in women who were inpatients, there would have been an explanation to the husband that, um, about the diagnosis um, of the mother. But these men were totally bewildered. And occasionally when I would do a home visit that one might be home from work or I'd have a phone call. But we thought we were practicing in a family-centered way, but it was very, very mother-centered. And we weren't very skilled in educating the wider family. And some of the judgments from the wider family were really crushing for the women. And we could have done better there. But then Panda's material, their written material, became so accessible and it was written in such an understandable form, but also with the authority because it was based on professional advice as well as lived experience, that the women could then share those pamphlets with others. And so Panda was really leading in the education of not just professionals, but of the wider community through the extended family and through maternal and child health centres and posters up. And then you were so involved in the media, in the media, um, radio interviews and um, local newspapers. and Anyone who asked. That's right. (laughs) That was so powerful. And then other states. Radio, everything. Mm, But the dads became involved too, also just through the slow progress of what was needed. It was what the families were telling us what was needed. I mean, that's how we grew Mm. slowly and steadily. And I had many men say, could I speak to your husband? Mm. Or other members, other volunteers had people say, yes, you can speak to my husband or partner, whatever. Which is a beautiful way of overcoming one of the many barriers people face, you know, and illustrating that. What were the other barriers that were happening at the time? It's all been done by volunteers and people like Professor Lynn Denistan and myself were also volunteers, not, not manning the phones or womaning the phones, but in um, uh, doing training sessions with Panda volunteers. Um, and we were learning as much from the peer support people as they may have been learning from us. Uh, so it was all done on absolute shoestring. I'm sure uh, wow. Anne and other people's phone bills was going were going through the roof. Mm-hmm. It was all all landlines. Um, but this was really it had people had such passion mm. and compassion, and there was something about the values and the emotions that carried it. But but that wasn't without its stresses and its pressures because some of the women in the early days of Panda and the Committee of Management, some of them weren't fully well. No. And so they were really sometimes struggling themselves but very committed to the cause and then appointing the first paid person and and those first steps to a more formal organisation with its constitution and its committee of management and its governance. It, It was tough and tricky making that transition. And then you were getting calls from women across Australia. Oh, And yes. then you were going to international conferences. Oh, so that this, was amazing. This that was, was something I would love. What year was this? Yeah. That was, well, we, we joined because of the psychiatrist at uh, the Women's. He was a member of the Marseille Society and he suggested in 85 that we join 
their conference was only every two years. It was international, as Dorothy just said. There were all the experts on perinatal depression and anxiety, and we shouldn't leave psychosis out of that either. But that's what it was about. So the Marseille Society sent us an invitation and a letter at the same time. And one of the sentences I'll quote, we believe that your experience and knowledge constitute a significant contribution for the world movement of mental health. That's amazing. And that's one sentence. That's right. For me, it was like, wow, (laughs) I think think we're doing what we wanted to do. It's amazing to hear about, you know, the meaning of lived experience and sort of the clinical domain coming together at a time and being so intrinsic and deep in the roots of this organisation, which you do feel, you know, um, in both working in it, but also from the reflections of community now. I'm just thinking about the complexities of not only building an organisation at that time, but thinking about the fact that you were providing help to really vulnerable people. So how did you kind of build the governance at that time? Well, I think we as a group evolved so slowly until that explosion, but we were ready for it then, almost. No one's ever really ready for a huge change like that. We felt comfortable. We we needed the health professional. I don't think there was any ever a problem saying, if you're interested in PND, please, we'd love to talk to you. Mm. My main thing in the beginning was... And this is how naive I was. If you educate the community and some of the professionals, everything will be good. All solved. Yeah. <laughs> Stigma will go. Everything will be fantastic. It happened naturally that we'd reached out to people we knew who were interested in PND. And I think that it, when you think about it, if you think about it deeply, is all from the fact that. I went to this doctor who said, I have an interest in PNT. So picking up on that was, well, it shouldn't be luck. I wonder who else out there might have an interest. And Jean knew, of course, about Dorothy. I think also the fact that we were instrumental in uh, more mother-baby units being mm. developed. The, the road wasn't always rosy, was it? Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, no. For example, <laughs> when the first employee was appointed, the the committee, which was completely of women who'd had a postpartum disorder, um, that was very hard for an organisation to go from a peer-based self-help group to an organisational structure where there was a committee of management and an employee, only one part-time employee, but it wasn't without its tensions. And so I think um, it's very interesting to think in terms of an organisational evolution of how does it hold the lived experience component and over time have a committee of management with a broader range of expertise, mm. um, including financial and legal as well as clinical. And, well, we had that anyway with the, inf- with the members. Informally, yes, through the yes. members. But but it, it, it really is quite a feat, it's quite an achievement of an organisation to begin as a self-help support group and to grow into what it is today. And while we've been talking about the very, very early days, there will be people right across those four decades Mm. that have taken it further and there will have been points when things 
weren't going so well and then uh, a regrowth and a, and so I think it's actually Panda is a fascinating organisational study um, but uh, I, I think today we're really celebrating the beginning and, and yeah. that was extraordinary. <laughs> when I left we had... Uh, we had funding for three part-time workers. Yes. Uh, but that was my gradual leaving Panda because I felt it was a great time for me to leave. I'd been 10 years almost. And Anne's leadership, um, I mean, that wisdom to know when to withdraw after it was strong and on its feet and walking, I mean, we often have charismatic founding mothers and charismatic founding fathers of social movements and of inspiring organisations. And that's wonderful for their inception, but sometimes decades down the track, that is a bit of a problem. Um, you can't knock off your founding mother or your founding father. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there needs to be evolution and change. Absolutely. And so, I mean, Anne showed great wisdom and vision in remaining there to see it on solid foundations, but then gradually letting go and it grew. It matured like a child. So I think that that's another really interesting dimension to this organisational story. Can I ask you both, what was the moment where you actually kind of stopped and went, oh, my goodness, we've created this? Was there a moment that comes to mind? For me, it was witnessing Panda on the international stage mm. and just seeing if I spoke in other states and I would mention Panda, that seeds had been sown nationally and internationally. I would have to say that that was it, yes. For me, there's so many points where I felt, wow. Uh, just being invited, the first time we were invited to a maternal and child health nurse conference to speak, mm. there were 60 nurses there. That was very early days. Mm, That would have been mm. 84, 83. Mm. Oh, and we were invited to attend once a month on a Saturday afternoon for one hour at Melbourne um, Uni uh, for the medical students to talk about PND and what women require. That was huge in itself. So when you look at where we're at now, zooming forward 40 years, are there things that you think, wow, we've really got to tackle that or there's so far to go still? I think both. I think you can say, look how far we have come, we as a society, the community, um, professionals. But you can also say, look how far we still have to go. And the circumstances today are different. Um, women return to paid employment very, very soon after the birth of children uh, to a much greater degree than 40 years ago. Women don't tend to know their neighbours in close supportive relationships as they once did before they may have ceased work prior to the birth of a child. And there are pros and cons to all of these, of course. The enormous pressure on families around housing affordability, Mm. um, the issues around um, identity, which is rooted in a workplace identity for many women, so that 
becoming a mother may actually be a sense of loss, a devaluation of who I am. I am just a housewife. You don't hear people say that anymore, but the the sense of this is who I am. So I think that there, um, there are social and economic challenges today which are greater than back then. Mm. But, of course, the great leap forward has been in the reduced stigma, which is not to say it still isn't there, and in the greater understanding and awareness of mental health generally. So I think it's interesting to reflect on on 40 years, Mm. what has been gained and what has changed and what is still to be done. I have to say that we now, one of the things, I'm like you, it's both. I'm thrilled that Panda's still operating and well and, you know, I've told you my little pop-up stories. Panda pops up for me in my life in, in any, uh, many different ways all the time. I think there's still a stigma attached. And I think we have to not make the mistake of saying it's because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's because you went back to work early. It's because this, it's because that, or, you know, it's harder to buy a house. The fact is, this is what you have, and it's an illness, and it's a mental health issue, and this is how we'll deal with it. The rest we deal with in a different way, because I, I don't think we can ever lose sight that change is, is, has to happen. I mean, in the first 10 years, look at the change. In the next 10 years, you'd expect another. And and where would we be without change? Mm. So I think we should never, whatever environment Panda's operating in, we shouldn't lose the vision that we have of effective immediate care and also research, so important still, and more services. There's still not enough services Most for definitely. women. That, so that I is can part see of both. the evidence issue, isn't it? Yeah. Panda is, you know, significantly impacted by the number of people reaching out for support and, you know, we can only deliver as much as our funding allows us, unfortunately, and it breaks our heart every day when we see people waiting on queues and not being able to get there and we know that it impacts our peer and our clinical workforce, you know, each day when they're watching those queues. Yes. But, you know, we feel so privileged and honoured when people do make it through those queues and get to yeah. share their story with us or engage with any of the other pieces that, as you said, whether it's a pamphlet that comes home or our website or our socials, mm. you know, that's very much where we grew from. But I think, you know, the fundamentals of what you've spoken about, the, you know, the lived experience, the evidence base, you know, the melding of the hearts and minds essentially, you know, the, the things that we feel and the things that we know through evidence base are still so intrinsic and so deeply embedded in this organisation, which makes me so very proud, you know, to, to hear of where it grew from, but also what we continue to do because it feels right. It's organic. It, yeah, it does feel right. And it's still a bit hit and miss when someone seeks assistance, but there's a much greater chance that the person they'll encounter, be that a child and family health nurse, be that a GP, psychiatrist, obstetrician, outreach worker, there's um, the social worker, psychologist, the whole, there's much greater chance now that a woman will and a family will encounter someone who knows a lot more than their equivalent peers did 40 years ago. So 
there are more doors. So it's not just down to luck anymore. It's not, well, there still is some luck. It can but, still but I think the be luck, a little. Yes, I think it's not as much of a lottery. Can I tell a little story about my daughter recently? Yes. So just three weeks ago now, it would be, or four, she was buying a new car seat for her son. And she goes up to the register and the woman said, would you like to give a donation for Panda? Do you know where pa- what Panda is? <laughs> and she said, well, I should, and I better give you a donation because my mum was the founding member. <laughs> and she said, oh, I love Panda. They helped me so much and so many of my friends. <laughs> and she hugged Kate. <laughs> That was a hug for you. And she said, I, I can't wait to tell my friends that I met you. Isn't it amazing the intergenerational wow. impacts so of this organisation? these are my adult children. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just know that um, the women who were in the group uh, that I had the honour of, of setting up and facilitating at the Queen Vic, um, they continued in contact with each other for 40 years. And um, it was brought home to me when one of the women died after a long illness and who gets up to do the eulogy? One of the other members of that group. And it was that day that I knew that these women hadn't just given each other support for 40 years. They had loved each other. It was much deeper than support. Um, So I I guess what I would hope for Panda is that it continues to be able to create webs of relationships which are self-sustaining in the support, the compassion, the care for whole families in community way beyond the quality of clinical services and being an advocate for improving at that level. I think it's an extraordinary journey over 40 years and I'm sure the next 40 years will be just as extraordinary. And right now it's in very safe hands. Very safe hands. Thank you for what you do each and every day. Thank you so much. I just want to perhaps say hope that when you're in the midst of the suffering, it's so hard to believe that it will change and that any organisation through its volunteers and its staff that is able to offer hope, to sustain hope at a time of despair and great suffering is, an, is a precious quality. And um, the leadership of such organisations we can't take for granted. There are many organisations that have their values written on a wall there are fewer who actually live them. Live them. <laughs> and I think Pandaria is one that lives them. So I would say the quality of hope is just absolutely precious. It's one of the first things we used to say to people when they would ring. Now you realise, has anyone told you that you will get well? Mm. It was so important to have that inner criteria of what to discuss. Yeah. And to come from someone who had got better and yes. he was living proof yeah. that it was possible. That, yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. That is. <laughs> and is. that remains a central piece of, mm. you know, what we deliver on yeah. the helpline six days a week now, yeah. you know, is very much that affirmation and mm. normalising of the individual's mm. experience. 
you know, when we talk about where we've gotten to today, it has been, again, this beautiful organic evolution and Panda has played a role in so many people's lives. And it's important to acknowledge that everybody has contributed both good and bad to an organisation because that's what makes us strong, you know. Um, and we would not be sitting here having a conversation if, you know, every peak and every trough that the organisation has grown through um, wasn't learnt from and didn't make us stronger. And again, the foundations that you've created are what keep us stable through all of that. And it's a wonderful thing to be sitting here. It's a great privilege to have been Isn't on it? this side of the table. Yes, thank it you. Is. Yeah. Oh, I thank you so much for having this conversation. You know, it's a, a really important one to have both as, you know, Panda, but also in the emerging space and the growing space of lived experience. I think we have a real story to tell and a story of success that we should be so very proud of. Um, and, you know, to have you guys continuing to be involved in this organisation and speaking to our staff and speaking to our community is just so important in maintaining the, the vibrancy of the tapestry that you have woven together and created and that we continue to build on. So thank you for having this conversation. We had a beautiful poem sent to us that we used to use a lot. I don't know if you've heard it, Dorothy. It was a... Uh, the woman didn't put her name to it, but it was from from a woman. And uh, it was called The Stranger in My Head. If only I was perfect like the lady on TV. But I'm not the silky, shiny one. Dull, lifeless hair, that's me. And my whites are never white enough. And my children fight and scream. And I wander through life, minds feel like a zombie in a dream. They never notice what I cook, and if they do, they moan. And we live our lives quite separately, together, but alone. Not like that happy couple that bubble on our screen and run up to their mum and tell them where they've been. For me, each day follows yesterday in a never-ending chain. I feel I've tried and failed just to try and fail again. Till the failures don't matter and I forget to try. And I build a wall around me, and no one knows just why. It's simple, really, if they only looked at all. I'm waiting here for someone who cares enough to scale the wall. That woman sent me that oh, right oh. at the beginning of Panda, and I've read it to people so many times. It's, so, it's as moving and as meaningful today as it was mm. 40 years ago. And imagine the comfort that those words would have brought people. Yes, yes. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Ooh, so pleasure. very special. It was a great note on which to end with a poem. Survive and Thrive is a podcast from Panda, Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, an accredited mental health service. You'll find all the links and information you need in the episode notes, wherever you're listening. But just a reminder, if you are a new or expecting parent, you can call Panda's free national helpline from Monday to Saturday on 1300 726 306. Panda recognises the individual and collective contributions of people with a lived or living experience of mental health issues, their families, loved ones and supporters. Every story informs how we care for people and their community. Survive and Thrive is produced by Dead Set Studios for Panda, Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia. Don't forget there are lots more episodes in your podcast feed, so hit follow in your favourite podcast app. <laughs>